Well, church, this has been a very difficult week, and I, I was thinking about what we're walking through, and I thought about another time not so long ago that was very, very difficult. In 1941, December the 7th, um, Pearl Harbor was attacked, a day that will live in infamy. 2,700 people were killed, at least. And three days later, on December the 10th, 1941, the two largest vessels in the British Navy that were considered to be surefire, impenetrable, the HMS Repulse and Prince of Wales, both were sunk off the coast of Malaysia. And Churchill would write in his memoirs later that from that point forward for months, the whole Pacific was open to Japanese attack and Japanese advancement, especially the west coast of America. It was a very difficult time. Churchill and England had stood against the Nazis and the Japanese really by themselves. And in May of 1940, a year and a half before this date, France had fallen as well as the other allied nations. And so it really was England against the Nazis and the Japanese. But then after Pearl Harbor, Hitler declared war on America. And so Churchill made a very daring cross ocean visit to the United States, came to the United States, was here for Christmas with Franklin Roosevelt. And Franklin Roosevelt uh, declared for January the 1st to be a day of national prayer. And he said, as we pray as a nation, pray for three things primarily. Pray that we would have the strength for the coming conflict that will be long. He said, pray that we would pursue a just peace after we win. And thirdly, he he said this, primarily pray that we would ask God for the forgiveness of our national sins so that we might be worthy to receive his mercy and grace. In that that setting, uh, for example, the Rosebud was moved from Pasadena, California, to Durham, North Carolina on January the 1st, 1942, because they were fearful of a Japanese attack, rightfully so. And so they played in Durham in very cold weather, and thousands and thousands of Duke fans who were there, undefeated Duke had a a sign that said, beat Hitler and Oregon State. they did beat Hitler, but they did not beat Oregon State. It was called the winter of disaster. We were in a bad place. On January the 1st, there was a special worship service at an Episcopal church in Alexandria, Virginia. Churchill and Roosevelt went to that church. They chose that church because it was the church of George Washington. In fact, outside there was two plaques One said, this is the family church of George Washington. The other said, this is the family church of Robert E. Lee. The church in Roosevelt went, and they sat in the Washington family pew, and they sang four hymns, one of which was the Battle Hymn of the Republic, the first time that had been sung in that church. And Churchill was so moved, he wept, which he did frequently, and he said, um, after he says, I want this him sung at my funeral in honor of my American mother, and 23 years later, it was sung at his funeral. But in the context of this worship service, the prayer of George Washington was read very solemnly. And I just want to read that prayer. This should be our prayer, I think. That this is the prayer of George Washington for his country. I'm just going to read it. Almighty God, 
We make our earnest prayer that you will keep the United States in your holy protection, that you will incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government and entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another and for their fellow citizens of the United States of America at large. And finally, that you would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to humble ourselves with that charity, humility, and even temper of mind, which are the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, and without whose example in these times, these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Grant our supplication, we beseech thee through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. After the service, they went to the Washington Memorial where Churchill laid a wreath at the tomb of George Washington. They went to the Lincoln Memorial, and then they went to the White House. I, I, I say that because to give us some perspective. These are difficult times. There have been other more difficult times. But in the midst of this, we should pray that we as God's people would be salt and light in this culture. That we would speak truth and kindness. That we would be peacemakers as we walk with the Lord. That we would indeed follow the example of our Savior. So, so I think about these times and, and if, if you've ever gone sailing, you know, when you're on a, a sailing vessel and the winds will hit the sail and the, it'll go fast or it won't and you'll be in irons or sometimes you raise the jib and you go fast. And, but, but, but you're always, when you're around people that are, quote, old salts, they say, man, you got to develop sea legs. And sea legs means, for those of us who are land lubbers, that, that we can walk on the vessel gingerly without falling into the lake or the sea or the ocean, that, that, that we are able to balance ourselves and develop sea legs. And then I thought about that metaphor right now. How do we develop sea legs in a very difficult time? How do we walk with consistency and godliness and trust the Lord in a, in a tumultuous time? There's a statement in the worship guide from C.S. Lewis, a little book called Mere Christianity. And, and Lewis says this, he says, the, the, really the issue of every day happens when we don't expect it, when we first wake up. Um, at that moment, you wake up and all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice and taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in and so on all day. Standing back from your natural fussings and frettings, coming in out of the wind. And so, so I saw that. So how do we develop sea legs, or how do we come in from out of the wind? How, how do we live in this difficult time? I read a book recently, and the guy said, here's a, author said, here's a formula for our day. He said, he said, information overload plus social acceleration, which means social change is unprecedented, unprecedented in the last 300 years at least. So information overload, you just can't begin to assimilate everything you hear, plus social acceleration leads to incredible confusion. You know, social acceleration, up is down, down is up, in is out, out is in. You, you, everything, they're always moving the goalposts. They're always redefining the strike zone if you play baseball. And it's, it, it leads to confusion. 
And then I thought about the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about the way we're supposed to live. And he says, blessed are the, the poor in spirit. And blessed are those who mourn over their sin and the sin of the world. Blessed are the meek or the humble or the teachable. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And blessed are happy are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then after describing all these places of happiness or blessedness, he says this, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its, its taste or its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So he says, don't lose your saltiness, which brings preservative and flavor to meats. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't, don't forget to develop sea legs. Don't forget to come in from out of the wind, whatever metaphor you want to use. And then I thought, how, how do we do that? And one place we start, I think, is in, for example, Proverbs 9. In Proverbs 9, it says, the writer says, there, there really are, are two worldviews calling, beckoning for your attention. He says, first of all, there is the woman wisdom who has built her house with seven pillars, which means completeness. And, 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 and she has sent out young women to call from the highest places of the town. And here is their call. Whoever is simple, simple. Whoever is simple, let, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, come and eat my bread and drink the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. And she says, you know, the, the, the first step is to say, I, I'm simple. I need guidance. I need to come in out of the wind. I need to develop sea legs. And then the, the calling part is this, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days shall be multiplied and years will be added to your life. There's another path. There's another worldview call. And it says, the woman folly is loud and she is seductive and knows nothing. And she sits at the door of her house and she calls to those who pass by saying this, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is sweet. Now, there, 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 are two, there are two messages and two paths. There's Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. But their message is whoever is simple. And some people say, I'm going to give my attention and my energy and my thoughts to folly. And I'm not going to listen to the Lord. I'm not going to understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One brings insight. And so th th these are the worldviews that we have. So how do, you, how do you develop sea legs? Here's a book I've read recently entitled Breaking Bread with the Dead by Alan Jacobs, professor of literature. And Alan Jacobs um, subtitles his book, A Reader's Guide to a More Tranquil Mind. And he says, if we're to think well, we've got to know the great authors of the past and what they were saying. And let me give you two 
quotes both one sentence. He says, we lack the density or the rootedness to stay put even in the mildest breeze from our news feeds. He says, you know, even in, the, even in a good day when the breeze is mild and the breeze has been hurricane force lately, but even when the breeze is mild, there's so much information that's thrown at us that we can't find our rootedness. The second quote is this, it says, to acquire the requisite rootedness, you have to decide to get out of your transitory moment and move into a bigger time. And I think we do that as believers through this. We're people of the book. We think biblically. We, we live with an eternal perspective, and that's what we're about. So how do you develop sea legs? I'm going to address that in the next few weeks out of 2 Timothy 1, and today verses 3 to 6. Let me read it to make three quick points. Now, so listen to the scripture. This is 2 Timothy 1, 3 to 6. This, this letter is written by Paul from prison shortly before he's martyred to his younger son of the faith, Timothy, who is somewhat, we think, shy and retiring. And Paul says this, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So I had to develop sea legs. Three points. Number one is this. If I'm to develop sea legs, I must understand I have received a legacy and I will leave a legacy. I've received a legacy and I'm going to leave a legacy. We won't live that long, but what we do will live after us. In the book of Romans, Paul is discussing with the church an issue that was bedeviling the church. There were some people who followed a very strict dietary code and certain foods were kosher, certain foods were not. And there are others who said these feast days and fasties must be observed. And some said they don't have to be. And, and Paul just cuts to the chase because he says in, in, in Romans 14, let me just read verses seven and eight. He, he says, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Echoing a passage in 1 Corinthians 6, you've been bought with a price, glorify God with your bodies. So Paul says, you know, really, you live as unto the Lord. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. When you die, you go to heaven. You live as unto the Lord. Remember that you are responsible to love and care for other people. You have received a legacy, and you'll leave a legacy after you depart. Uh, Hebrews, New Testament. Hebrews 11 celebrates the great heroes of the faith from the Old Testament who live with fidelity and commitment to the Lord. Many of them were persecuted and 
gave their lives for the glory of the living God. And then we come to Hebrews 12, and the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But it says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. There are people that have gone before us, and we have received a faith that's been once and for all delivered to the saints, and we're to live for them. And years ago, we used to sing a hymn in the church called Onward Christian Soldiers, and one of the bylines said, brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. You have received a legacy, Timothy, from Lois and Eunice, grandmom and mom, Paul says, I received a legacy from my ancestors. Therefore, you develop sea legs by understanding you have received, you're responsible, and you'll leave it. There's a little book that a man wrote called Meditations. And it's become part of the Western canon many throughout the history of Western literature. But it, it was written by a man named Marcus Aurelius, who was one of the good emperors of Rome, who was emperor from 161 to 180. Marcus Aurelius, if you watch Gladiator, he was portrayed by Richard Harris, I think in a wonderful way. But anyway, Marcus Aurelius, he wrote this book called Meditations. It really was his journal. He, he never thought it was going to be published and read 2,000 years after he, he had died. But, but it's, it's, it's a book with 13 chapters. But the first chapter, this is written by the Roman emperor. The first chapter is just paragraph after paragraph where he thanks people for being role models for him. He starts off in the very first paragraph, I want to thank my granddad for showing me how to live with dignity, my dad for showing me how to live with, with a sense of, 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 of bravery and composure, my mother for showing me how to worship the gods, he wasn't a believer, and how to follow, he says, a very good diet and how to avoid the excessive horrible nature of wealth. And then he goes through person after person. This person taught me kindness. This person taught me how to be patient. This person taught me this. this. And he closes once again by talking about his dad. And I just read that and thought, here's an emperor who was being told at that time that you're, you're a god, and yet he had the humility to look back and say, I have been shaped and fashioned by a legacy that has been passed on to me. And I thought, what a great exercise it would be for us to sit down and just write a two or three sentence to seven or eight people in our own mind that says, this person taught me that, and this person taught me kindness, and this person taught me how to, how to have a self-effacing sense of humor, or this person taught me how to be courageous, or this person stood the test. I mean, you just do that. You have received a legacy, brothers and sisters. You're trading where the saints have trod. It may be your mother and your grandmother. It may be a person who went before you. But you have received a legacy, and you will leave a legacy. So to develop sea legs, you realize you don't live to yourself. You live as unto the Lord, and you leave a legacy. So we live this day in light of that day. If you're a secularist, a well-meaning secularist, you just live this day as, because it's today. We live this day in light of the day of the Lord in light of the glory of heaven, develop sea legs. Number two, if I'm developed sea legs, I've got to understand the, the joy 
of relationship, really the reciprocal joy of relationship. Listen to verse four. It's easy to get run by this. Paul says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Joy. Reciprocal joy. And then as I meditate on this, I thought about the absolute importance of community where there are people in your life that dance for joy over you or weep for joy over you or even weep for joy or weep for sorrow when you don't do well. And then conversely, are there people over whom you rejoice and over whom you would weep if it doesn't go well for them and they don't walk in the way of the Lord? And I I just thought, if I am to have sea legs, I must be someone who understands the absolute importance of relationship. It's just not, hi, how you doing? But there are people in my life that pray for me, that I pray for, that care for me, that I care for. And, you know, as you you grow older, as I grow older, some of the people I most admire are people who've been abandoned in relationship but they keep pressing into the kingdom. Example, I've walked with several people whose spouses left to them. Boom, I'm out. And whenever you talk about a situation like this, you, you always hear, well, there are always two sides to every story. Let me tell you, that is a lie. It's a lie. Now, we all are sinners. We all bring stuff to the table. But there are innocent parties in divorces. The Bible teaches that. But but instead of withdrawing and becoming bitter, they continue through tears and pain to pursue the Lord. And they have ministered deeply to me. There are people who I know and are dear friends of mine. And I'm not saying this in any sense of Humility. I'm just being bluntly honest. Who were the men were better dads than I have ever and would ever be, and yet their children abandon them. Their children have walked out, and either they are physically or emotionally untouchable, and yet these parents continue to pray and love and serve and pursue. I can't tell you how much that's ministered to me. But the longer you're alive, the more you're exposed to absolute trauma in relationship. I've, I've got a theory. I, I call it the, the bush theory, the, you know, the tree theory. That, you know, you get married, it's just the two of you. And, and it's okay. And then you have these little sprigs called children. And, and then the children get married to other sprigs. And then the other sprigs have grandkids. And the more sprigs you add, the more difficult it is to, 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 to really manage it. And the more you open yourself up to pain and sorrow and, and heartache. And yet that's part of our calling. There's this little book by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. It's a great book. And this is what he says. Let me just read one paragraph. He says regarding 
relationships. He says that there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. When I do weddings, I love to do weddings. Just, just, just not. You know, everybody's happy and the bride comes down the aisle and the groom comes in. I've always thought, really, if you knew what marriage can do to your heart, you both should crawl in here on your hands and knees saying, God, have mercy on my pitiful soul. Because really, it's only the grace of God. Anyway, not to discourage you. He says, if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, your heart, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. You must wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. You must lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket that is safe and dark and motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers and ups and downs of love is hell. I think he's right. So my question to you is, are you recklessly loving people who probably don't deserve it? Are you constantly extending grace to those around you? How do you develop sea legs? You have deep relationships. Relationships with people over whom you weep and rejoice and are thankful and vice versa. Number three, if you develop sea legs, you must have a life-embracing pursuit. Listen to verse six. He says, I, 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 uh, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This is the only time this word kindle afresh or fan into flame is used in the New Testament. And it really means, it means to, to blow into a white hot flame. You, you do that because you never stop growing. Paul says late in this book, chapter four, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. What a statement. He says, I'm hitting the tape hard. What a statement. But, but I think the primary reason, just a few minutes we have, is the reason we fan into a flame is because our faith needs fanning. Now, I, I grew up in a home where we had billows, or bellows, excuse me, where you would blow on the fire. You've seen those. And it would fan it into a flame. See, our, our faith comes and goes. Our, the, the, the gift of faith becomes the walk of faith, and that becomes somewhat more, sometimes less. We need to fan it into a flame. Just went to California, visited my son and his family, my daughter and her husband and kids went with us. We had a really good time. They're at 8,000 feet, lots of snow, lots of cold weather. They have a wood-burning stove upstairs that's delightful. It heats the, a, a great room and then a, a porch kind of sort of, and the kitchen's part of the great room and a bedroom. It's really, it's really great stuff. So I, I'm usually the first one up in the morning. I wake up early. And, and so I would go upstairs and usually my son gets up about two or three o'clock and he throws a couple of logs on the fire. If he slept through that, I would go upstairs and instead of going from cold to nice warm, I would feel no change in the temperature. So I would open up the stove, and I would look inside, and there would always be some embers there. You know, some embers. 
And so I would take some paper and wire it up, put it under the embers, and I would blow on it. Then I'd put some kindling over the top and I'd blow some more. And it would just catch and it would start. And I'd blow some. Then I'd put a log on top and all of a sudden in five minutes you've got a beautiful fire that's warming the whole upstairs. And I, I, I thought that, that should be one of the things we say to each other, you know. Blow, kindle afresh your faith in 2021. You know, by the Holy Spirit's power, kindle it afresh. Because we all have ups and downs and ends. Kindle it afresh. Keep your eyes fixed. And so I looked at this book and I said, well, how, how do you kindle afresh? How do you blow it into a flame? And here's the answer. You always major on the glory and the goodness and the sufficiency and the shed blood and the eternal love of Jesus. Verse 9 says this. He says, this, this God who has saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of works that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This calling is because of the grace of a God who loved us before time began. And then later in chapter 2, he says, verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So if, if I'm going to blow it into a flame, I'm going to be about the sufficiency and the work and the power of Jesus and what he's done for me, what he's done for us, what he's done by his death and his life. And so you go back to Hebrews. Hebrews says, you know, 12.1 12, says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin that which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. Then it says this in verse two, fixing our eyes on Jesus. How, how, how do you develop sea legs? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Verse three, he says, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You know, how, how do I develop sea legs? How do I not become weary or faint-hearted? You consider the greatness and the majesty and the power of Jesus, brothers and sisters. Develop sea legs. Yes, these are difficult times. Yes, these are tumultuous times. But we serve a great God. And so we understand we're leaving a legacy. We've received a legacy. We understand that we're developing relationships that are sustaining as we develop relationships that give sustenance to other people. And, and we have a life-embracing pursuit of fanning into a flame this gift that God has given us. 